The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and I don't know if you can hear the excitement in my voice. This is episode 93. I've done a lot of these, but listen to the excitement in my voice. This is a personal favorite interview of all the 90 plus I've done. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Pinar and So, Sinopolis Lloyd. Their company is called Queer Nature, and they lead quests and courses dedicated to cultivating earth-based queer community through traditional skill building. I connected with them online. They were at home on their couch in Colorado. So, Pinar, let's start with you. I'd like to ask you Desiree Attaway's excellent question. What identities do you lead with? Yeah, um, thank you for that question. Um, one of the most important things for me to introduce myself is my lineages. Um, so uh, my matrilineage lineage is Wonka from the Andes, as well as Chinese um, from Spanish enslavement in the 1700s in Peru. Um, and then uh, my patrilineage is Turkish. Um, and that's actually where I grew up for most of my childhood. Um, and the other thing that I, is really important to me is my more than human ancestors. So one of the things that, one of the beings that is so core to how I lead with is um, my relationship to um, this creek in particular called Hakhavsua, which they're on Yavapai and Apache territory. Um, and this is a big part of how I lead is through kind of my relationship with um, riparian or creek and river ecologies um, that really informs um, who I am as a queer person, as an indigenous person. Um, and yeah, so I will also just mention that. And lastly, um, being a guest on Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Ute territories is a big way that I lead, especially on their land. Mm, thank you. Can you say a little bit more about uh, the riparian ecosystem? Um, it, that really, I could feel my body kind of wake up and get excited and start to already think in metaphor, but it, I would like, if, if you're willing, uh, to hear you kind of animate that a little bit more about what's special about that and how you relate to that ecosystem. Yeah, great question. It's a lot of my relationship has been um, nonverbal. Um, so it's, I've been having, it's a great question like to um, inspire words to it. But essentially my relationship to river and creek, um, creeks in general are, well, actually recently I found out that the Wonka people, my matrilineage, we are, um, cosmology or origin story is that we come from a high altitude lake. Um, and so for me, a lot of my queerness has been really reflected with um, creek and rivers, in particular creeks again, um, and a lot of deep dialogue, especially around accountability and decolonization um, has come up in regards to, yeah, interspecies relationship and conversation in particular to waterways and, um, and again, really echoing that um, water is life. 
and it, that can expand in so many different ways, I'll just say. Mm -hmm. Can I ask you one more question about it? How do you see the relationship between queerness and Creek? Yeah, um, that's really individual to me. Um, but, I mean, I'm sure there's many other Creek um, queers out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say that as a person who's really identified or explored my relationship to gender um, through my relationship to the natural world and through mysticism, um, I feel like gender fluidity is kind of how I embody myself and through kind of like liminal um, terrain. And I feel like um, creeks and rivers in my conversations with them have really reflected that fluidity and that strength um, that can kind of shapeshift. And um, so I feel like as a person who is liminal in my gender expression and can move in between, um, that that is one of the ways and many ways, different ways that have been really, um, that I've been feeling really reflected in like the external landscape um, with my internal landscape of queerness. Mm, thank you so much. I, I feel like you've just modeled all of the questions that I'm about to ask you for the rest of the interview. I mean, it's just so illustrative. So thank you very much. I, I'd like to bring in uh, your spouse. So, so what identities do you lead with? Um, yeah, I, it's such a good question. And it's interesting to track my own process with like answering the question because like what comes up first and then going deeper, like what is more deeply under the surface and um, like, um, seeing some of your um, blog and podcast is, is it's so cool to know how um, how much you care about um, the in, sort of the invisible worlds and you know obviously the numinous and um, it's so I feel really um, safe to share something that I don't often share um, especially in relation to our professional work but it really is more core to just my soul's path and my my personal identity and um, I guess when, when we're asked about identity, identity, especially in relation to the work we do and with queer nature, often I think folks expect me to talk about being queer or like non-binary or like gender or sexuality and that's there. But um, for me, actually, my a big part of the identity that I lead with, I think which is more subconscious now, but because um, it's just such a deep part of me, really it has its roots in mysticism. Um, and I guess the story behind that is that when I was a teenager and I realized that I was queer, um, you know, and I was in love, you know, in like middle school when I fell in love with a, um, you know, a female classmate of, for the first time. And I was like, it was the first time I ever fell in love. And um, at the time, I really wasn't out, not for a few more years. And um, I, there was just this really painful but beautiful longing that I experienced that was so... Um, that also felt very like transpersonal. And I um, began to discover um, mystical poetry, particularly like Persian and Sufi poetry, but also later Christian poetry, because um, as someone whose ancestry is from, you know, the Mediterranean and um, Southern and Northern Europe, that I, I you know, I, I ended up exploring that as well. But I just remember what really struck me about um, particularly experiencing Sufi poetry, like Rumi and Hafiz, sort of the um, the usual suspects um, <laughs> that Westerners are exposed to, but um, just encountering the, the concept of the friend or the beloved 
as this um, object of transpersonal longing that just provoked such devotion and such such service to humanity, um, but also this kind of this longing to this being that could kind of never be consummated um, also created this identity in these mystics that they kind of walked in two worlds, you know, and there was such this intense love of life and of humanity, but there is also this looking beyond um, and sort of this almost identity with the sort of an other world. Um, and what's interesting is in the Christian tradition, I think a lot of that, the analogous experiences have people have sort of criticized that as well. People were really rejecting the body and rejecting sexuality, but I, I guess I don't experience it that way. And I, I never experienced um, it that way. Cause I kind of just experienced it as like these people were queer, you know? Um, and so that's really the beginning of my queer identity. Um, and then I ended up really, that ended up really evolving and maturing into my relationship with the non-human world and particularly with the natural world or the, the you know, the um, four-legged creatures and um, birds and um, wild spaces. Um, and that, that seemed like just a really, um, that seemed like a really appropriate place to um, sort of play around with and experience these dynamics around transpersonal and trans species like longing and belonging and relationship um and it was kind of like wow it's really possible to 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 forge these relationships with non-human things it doesn't have to be like this thing that we long for that can never like that can really never be palpable even though i think there's always an aspect of that so that's that's what i think that's what ended up drawing me to nature connection was just was like was those things um and I don't know if, see if there's anything else I want to say about that. I, I do feel like what, um, I have sort of some somewhat analogous things going on archetypally with Pinar, although for me, like, I kind of relate more to like um, animals that are sort of um, persecuted or, or hybrid. Um, you know, I relate a lot to, um, you know, the Eastern coyotes, um, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're basically hybridized from Western coyotes and Eastern wolves, and they're right now very heavily persecuted. Um, but what's interesting about them that you also see with other animals that are, um, that receive a lot of negative projections from humans like rats or pigeons is that their, their resiliency is like connected to our, to humanity's like kind of demonization of them. Like what humanity like hates about them is like directly connected to their resiliency and often it has to do with their intelligence, their social structure, the fact that they're highly social, the fact that they might have language like prairie dogs. And I just find all that so interesting and so queer. So um, I feel like I've spoken a lot, so maybe I'll just- <laughs> I love that. it. I could, uh, yeah, no, I could listen forever. I have some thoughts from a, a minute ago though. This is the first time, I mean, I've, I've thought of uh, the mystics as, as queer before, but this is the first time I've ever heard anyone uh, link for me in such a, you know, miracle and very touching way, um, mysticism and queerness. And mm. so, you know, of course, I'm thinking of like John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Hildegard of Bingen and, and, and these very, the, the Christian mystics who are maybe not as exoticized, you know, like we, and so we think of them as like, oh, well, this is like 
they are literate. And so they have the, these uh, romantic, almost sounding poems, but it, you know, there's this plaintive quality to them. And I understand as you're bringing in this notion of like uh, the beloved and the, 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 the raw yearning for something that can never be consummated and mm -hmm. how that connection with between mysticism then and devotion and queerness that it all just seemed to really come together and make sense for me in such a lovely way as you were describing that so thank you very much um can you tell me so a, a little bit about how you and Pinar met and mm. um obviously you eventually started working together um i'd love to know a little bit about that history yeah um well we met um we met at a place called Wilderness Awareness School, or we met through that place. Um, and I think that's really where our story began, or if to speak in sort of riparian terms, that's where the confluence was, is, um, or was, or still is, I'm not sure. Um, and yeah, basically um, Wilderness Awareness School is um, a uh, wilderness, basically skills and nature mentorship school out in Washington. And they have a, a nine month adult residential program. Um, and I was visiting the area. Um, I was visiting Seattle because I was considering um, doing the program that following fall. And um, I was basically there for a weekend scoping things out and looking at, um, you know, looking at the school and the area. And um, it was interesting because I had on their website um, for their adult residential program, they list all the bios of all the current students kind of like with some grad programs do that and you can see like just a headshot and like a short paragraph long bio and um i remember it was like in the middle of the, win the winter the that previous year that i had began looking into the program and i remember be seeing panar's bio actually on the website and um i was just really struck by it and i was partially struck by the fact that in the first sentence well for for um, the first thing was the, the first sentence they introduced their ancestry um, and they introduced both of their ancestries but their Turkish ancestry and talked about shepherding um, and I actually have that is sort of another part of my um, kind of labyrinthine and interesting um, journey toward nature connection was that I um, throughout college I worked seasonally as a shepherd and I um, basically started working as a shepherd in order to connect to my Greek um, matrilineage because sheep are like life to the Mediterranean people. Um, and I think that often gets overlooked um, that, that, that there is really that sort of animistic connection, albeit sort of in an agricultural setting. So shepherding was such a huge part of my soul's path and my route to nature connection. And then I was like, oh my God, this person is half Turkish and like they've worked as a shepherd and they're like gender queer. That was the other thing. They were very like out about being gender queer in their in their bio. And I guess here's here's why that was really striking because I'd I'd been involved in um, wilderness skills schools before and sort of in the survival skills scene. And I mean, a lot of people might know just from looking at the popular shows on TV that are survival shows. That I mean, it can be a pretty competitive and sort of macho. Um, uh, sort of aesthetic and environment to all of that. And it can be hard to find space for queer folks. And it's not that queer folks are like not welcome, but it's just that it's hard to feel welcome. And so when I saw Pinar's bio, I was like, wow, this school like is cool with posting this on their website. Um, and that just was like, that was like this clue. Um, and then when I ended up visiting Seattle to visit the school, 
I ended up running into Pinar just randomly in the, in the town near the school. We, we literally were, I parked in a parking lot because um, I was going to walk around this town and just get a feel for it. And I literally parked next to Pinar. And since Pinar always parks backward, we opened our driver's side door to each other. And like Pinar was trying to get into their car and I was trying to get out and like we were at an impasse. Um, and then at that moment, I realized that I recognized Pinar from the website. And at that point, I had to like be really brave and like say something about it. Um, so that was how we met. And then, of course, I did end up moving there and going to the program. And Pinar did end up staying in the area. Um, and and it was a big that year was a big initiation for me, but also for us as a couple um, and just seeing seeing so many things mirrored in each other, like these confluences of mysticism, nature connection, um, um, connection to the Mediterranean and ancestral connection and to sheep. And like, I think there was this inkling throughout that year that our, our um, partnership was very co-visionary, but it wasn't till like a, a year or two later that we started to evolve the, the vision for queer nature and for like, like offering ancestral skills for LGBTQIA folks. Um, and that sort of evolved in sort of a gradual process through our own experiences on, um, well, on quests, on, on fasts, um, and just, our, just the unfolding of our stories with each other and feeling that mirroring and being like, hey, if we're feeling this, there are other people out there. And like, let's create a culture or a community like starting with the two of us and starting with our queer marriage and let's let it like radiate out so queer nature is so much about our ecology like it's so from that i can i tell you what i'm feeling <laughs> i'm so buzzing from your story <laughs> it's so awesome it's so beautiful and uh and i i really uh, love the term co-visionary. I feel very much like that in my partnership with my husband. And uh, so I, I celebrate you and I thank you because it's, um, I feel kinship there, that there's something about partnership where you're like, whoa, <laughs> the two of us are coming together. And we're, there's this um, eco-cosmic thing happening, which is so great. Can I ask you, Pinar, how did you feel when you met and then through your questing and you know just in this period that so was talking about how was it for you good question um i honestly was shocked when i met so there was like this um the way that i explained it to so later was that i've only felt this way with like um and i'll say what that is but like with um being met and reflected and mirrored in a really soul initiatory way through um landscapes and like more the more than human world and so when i met so i was like whoa like you're human like this is really strange and i um uh, or i guess the first time that i felt met in that way with a human um and so i feel like a lot of like our internal landscapes um mine really kind of mirrors a lot of like the Colorado plateau or what is called the Colorado plateau. And so it's a more of like a boreal forest. And so I felt like where our um, landscapes met the transition zone, it just felt when, when they met, there was this recognition that was in, like really um, somatically overwhelming when I first met them. Um, and 
to the point that after so left, um, like they had to go to Seattle um, to visit their friend, stay with their friend that I was driving back up to my um, cabin and I had to pull over and like, I was like shaking and I was like, I started to call, now I call it like crafter where I was like crying and laughing at the same time. <laughs> and like my body was just like so intensely impacted on this, this level that was like not cognitive. And, um, and I think was really a soul level and um, yeah. And the best way that I can again, explain it is that it was this encounter um, kind of like really similar to, um, you know, when, I encounter like wild creatures or like landscapes that really mirror me um, that completely threw me off. Um, mm -hmm. It was a beautiful throwing off. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And yeah. So, and did you want me to go into like the, the questing piece too? Yeah. I wonder if you can just sort of, um, you know, I've been on your website, I've read some of your articles, but for listeners who aren't really familiar with quests and wilderness questing, like, can you talk a bit about what you do and your business together with Queer Nature? Yeah, um, I think I'll start with kind of my uh, story of how I got into guiding, because mm -hmm. um, that's something I often think about as I wonder you know what is the story of why people guide um and like what is that you know that um compass um, internally and that intention that we hold and um briefly i'll just share that as a gender uh, variant teen um who also was neurodivergent which essentially means like um, can mean and can mean many different kinds of neurodivergencies but I had experiences with parallel realities often, um, which were actually really focused on the more than human world um, and having deep relationships and conversations with the more than human world. Um, that ended up getting pretty pathologized um, when I was a teen and being medicated and um, being a survivor of psychiatric um, abuse. Um, and, um, and so through my parallel reality experiences where I had a lot of experiences of intimacy with the more than human world, I started to, um, without direction necessarily, except I will say my ancestors were directing me, um, now that I can see kind of the tracks that they left and like the patterns in my story where they were pointing me, um, that um, essentially I started to self-create um, ceremonies in like, um, outside without eating and by myself. And, um, and then I started to realize slowly that these were things that people did <laughs> and um, that this was like normal and um, actually necessary, um, if I can be as bold to say that. But I feel like it's necessary um, to be in relationship with the more than human world um, and sometimes I, I struggle to say wilderness solo because like we're not alone, but like it's, it's more of just like when we decide to go away from our human centric world, like, or like sever ourselves from there, immerse ourselves in the intimacy of the more than human community and what we get reflected of like our gifts in the world is what I felt like um, happened to me when I was doing these experience or you know, having these experiences, these parallel reality experiences um, with the more than human world. Um, and so 
I eventually found the term, uh, one of the terms, I guess, um, was through my experience reading um, Bill Plotkin's work, Soulcraft, and, um, and his languaging around underworld guiding. And so, um, yeah, and so I'm really grateful for that term because that feels way more fitting to me than, um, I guess, like, yeah, I mean, that just feels really fitting to me um, as a person. And the only other word that I've also found is um, really um, connected to my lineage, um, my Andean lineage, which is Kwari Warmi, and that's um, a gender variant role um, in our communities. And um, that essentially was a person or people, not just one person, that held this liminal space of in-betweenness. And in Andean cosmologies, there's a really huge centering on the androgynous being the creative force of like um, of the world instead of the binary of like feminine and masculine, but actually that wholeness is shown up in androgyny and in betweenness. And so these people, Kwariwarmi people, held and continue to hold that as ceremonialists um, and often help the transition between death and like birth and all these spaces of in-betweenness, including cultural in-betweenness. Mm -hmm. They were often um, called upon when there was a cataclysmic change happening in Incan culture. I'll just speak specifically to Incan culture. Um, and to me, that's just so beautiful because I feel like that is like underworld guiding to like a, like, um, a cultural level in some, at least in that cultural level. Um, so yeah, so I I was I fell in love with you know the I um, the path towards guiding and like listening to people's stories and holding spaces for um, yeah for those parallel experience parallel reality experiences if you want to call them that or just these altered states um, which again are really human and really integral I believe to our health as a species and as co ecological community members. Um, so, you know, after meeting So, it, you know, I feel like we were really buzzing with this ripeness of like wanting to create these spaces for the queer community in particular. And, um, and I would say like ancestral skills was a huge way of accessing those kind of um, altered states, if you want to call them that, or just like these initiatory experiences of how to be accountable as like a human animal um, and be in real Sorry, can I interrupt for one second? Because I don't want to rush past this beautiful term. You just, you just dropped a little pearl of ancestral skills. Can you just uh, flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, so great question. Um, a lot of people will, you know, talk about like quote unquote primitive skills or like survival skills or like wilderness skills. Um, I often, I, I could name why I tend to not use those words, but I do. Uh, I would love to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, primitive tends to like Im impose that there's something that is sophisticated, like compared to like what is primitive. And usually, you know, as an indigenous ancestral skills practitioner, a lot of um, our native communities are really considered like like we have primitive technologies and um, or we had primitive technologies and now we have to assimilate to what is sophisticated and what is European. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I avoid the word primitive. That's actually the biggest reason why, because I think that there's a lot of re racism imbued in it um, or imbued, I don't know, yeah. And, um, and then as far as survival skills go, 
Um, I guess I just don't like this idea of like that we have to live in a fear-based way with the more than human world of mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. you know, um, that there's like a lack, like that for some reason we as humans are inherently unable to like thrive in the more than human world mm -hmm. as like quote unquote civilized beings mm -hmm. or uh, colonized beings is uh, to me another analogous term to civilized to me. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so, yeah, so again, I, I really try to avoid the word survival because it's actually a reconnective skill mm -hmm. um, and a remembering. And then wilderness skills, um, I, I feel a bit more neutral about that. But again, the idea of wilderness is also a colonial concept of how um, like w wilderness and like the park systems was actually a forced removal of First Nations peoples and um, a genocidal act. So the idea that wilderness is like a pristine place where like, you know, there were no humans and we can't leave traces of ourselves um, just feels really imbued in colonial thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so I appreciate that. And I'm so happy that you, you know, indulged me there because uh, often when folks are interested in uh, asking me questions about quest, it, it's all about fear-based stuff. How will I do this? How will I fast? How will I, I don't even know how to, and I try to sit with that without getting impatient, but I can only do it for so long because it seems so obvious to me that a precursor to any kind of personal healing you might ever hope for is being able to embed yourself in your environment and feel that you belong and feel that you can repair or make amends or show up in ceremony and gratitude and honoring like if, if you if you can't kind of somehow ease your way back into relationship with that part of the world good luck <laughs> with other you know people and you know civilization because yeah they're all sort of these overlays over this first natural way of being human so i i really i appreciate you unpacking all of that for us so I wonder if I can also ask you, why do you think that quests are important, I guess, for just everyone, anyone in, in, in general, but also in particular for queer folks? Yeah. Um, I want to also name that sometimes I'm uncomfortable with the word quest, um, which is okay. Totally. Uh, and that's something that So and I often think about is like, what new language can we create? Or I don't know if new is the best way of saying it, but what what is there that's emerging that's not there right now? That's also mm -hmm. informed by the past and honors, um, yeah, honors indigenous sovereignty, because I often worry about the word vision quest um, in particular, uh, which I know you didn't say, but I no, know that. I, I will say I want to um, honor my dear friend, Monique Gray Smith, who has had to more than once offer gentle feedback <laughs> over the over the years about how I, so first it sort of came away from vision quest and then, and, and, you know, even though there's uh, guidance from elders, the land that I go to and, and all of that, I still wish I could think of another word or description or phrase other than quest at all, because it already now 
seems to port the word vision with it. And again, it's this kind of colonial overlay over just this ancestral um, work. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I feel friction with myself and with the world over the language. And I, I'm going to keep watching how you folks um, <laughs> struggle with that and, and maybe emulate something <laughs> if you're, if you're so willing to, I will, I will proliferate whatever you come up with that is something emergent and honoring, but um, I hear you in feeling some discomfort around those, those terms. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's such a, um, kind of potent question to be living into. And I also like that question has the word quest in it. <laughs> it's like we can escape from it. But um, I mean, you know, one thing, again, we've also played around with the word solo, but again, because of the nature of our work that feels like it's so much about creating interspecies alliances and um, fostering a sense of belonging, it just like doesn't, solo doesn't feel quite right. Although it's definitely solo in relation to like kind of the, the human world and like modernization and stuff. But I mean, one thing, you know, and I can't speak for both of us in this, but with my own um, ancestry being, you know, my, my mom is a Greek immigrant. And so I have a lot of connection with Mediterranean histories and, um, you know, spiritualities and land-based traditions. And I mean, one thing that I do think has sort of been a bit steamrolled over in Protestant culture is like the rich tradition of, um, of, you know, the desert tradition and, um, basically what's called, um, you know, the, the, the hermit or the, the aromaticism, you know, which that in, in ancient Greek, eromos means desert. Um, and so that was literally their world word for, for wilderness, like what wilderness is to Western people, desert was to ancient Mediterranean people. And, and, you know, and I think it's so personal cause I can't, I can't like prescribe other people to, um, to hold the word hermit, like, although I noticed that a lot of like queer folks and just like introverts that I know, whether they're queer or not, like do use that word. <laughs> and so it's like, maybe we can, maybe there can be something there. Um, cause hermit, I think it can denote kind of this social awkwardness or alienation from the world. But, um, but really, we really want to kind of turn that narrative around that you sort of the narrative about sort of the nature hippie who's like escaping from civilization. Um, but um, but what about if you're not not escaping from something, but but going into something and entering into a deeper relationship, and then also able to bring that back, um, back quote unquote. Um, it's hard to escape using that language, but br bring, bridge that into um, the human and the sort of civilized and modernized worlds. Um, so yeah, I think it's a it's a really good question and. Um, I guess thinking about your question about um, why the wilderness, like wilderness quest or solo in particular is an important rite of passage um, for queer folks. Um, hmm. I mean, I think that something I've been really influenced by is some of um, like the work of Michael Mead and some other um, anthropologists and mythologists who focus on, who write about rites of passage um, and are involved in that work. And I do feel that risk is necessary. Um, and I feel like that's something that is, can become taboo in our world. Um, yeah, and I don't know, I'm sure that me saying that is, brings up a lot in folks who are listening, but I, cause I think, feel like we all are just in that. So we can all probably think of examples of how, um, you know, experiences in this, in our, in civilization and in the modernized world can be very sealed off and um, very overly protected. Um, 
and I and the ironic thing is, is I feel like if we are looking into this question of reviving and um, synthesizing like rites of passage for the modern world in in a good way, I mean, there has to be a conversation around around this notion that risk and vulnerability kind of seem like you can't take them out of the equation of initiation. Um, and I guess, you know, again, I'm, I'm sort of referring to sort of a anthropological knowledge and um, also cultural and mythological knowledge about these things and wisdom. Um, and it does seem like that's, that's kind of part of it. And, um, and so then it becomes like, well, what is, um, and this is something my met, some of my mentors have said, but like, what, what is the appropriate amount of risk, like for our modern worlds? I mean, cause, cause I think people in, in, maybe other land-based um, cultures or um, also ancient cultures, like for them, like it wasn't a, a big deal to like fast for, you know, three days, um, you know, and, and, and some, maybe, maybe there were initiate forms of initiation that were um, a lot more physically grueling than that, even maybe by adding like um, traveling over land or also maybe hunting or, you know, any of these matter of things. And so I guess I, that's a question that we're still living into. Um, and it does seem like, you know, a three or four day solo fast um, is sort of just the right amount of like nudging and discomfort and risk, um, you know, when held in like a, a, a good container um, with safety protocols and everything like that. But I guess on top of that, we also have, Pinar and I have a question about how accessible that is to queer people and to other um, like folks of color um, and queer folks of color. And so that's sort of an additional question that we have, even though both of us have really have had very rich experiences with three to four day um, solos that um, may or may not sometimes um, included fasts and other times not. But, um, but yeah, that's sort of a new question that we're, we're living into with queer nature. Um, because one of the other things we've discovered um, working with queer folks and teaching ancestral skills and sort of these and sort of ecological literacy or naturalist knowledge is that there's something really powerful for for queer folks um, and also queer youth we've seen with this is that there's just something powerful about the pack like the wolf pack you know because that's also a unit that has been um, persecuted too from like witches to like tribes like units of that units of solidarity units of radical solidarity are, have been historically persecuted and you know it's like this divide and conquer thing and so we want to be careful um it, like as we move forward with queer nature and designing our programs because right now we mostly do day-long programs uh, but we want to move toward multi-day stuff and potential solo stuff um but yeah that's a question we want to hold is like how quick should we be to prescribe a solo of blank length of time for these people who are coming to us? Like we want to feel into what, what is needed, um, what is wanted, what is rich and potent for people. And one thing we've discovered doing our day long classes, like when we taught a, a friction fire, we teach like a class where we teach bow drill and we've taught it to many different demographics and groups. Um, and recently we taught a queer only um, bow drill class and it was one of the first classes we've taught where almost every participant busted a coal, meaning they were able to ignite a Tinder bundle by the end of the class, but everyone did it in tandem. No one did it alone. And um, 
this was always something that we teach where we're like, well, you know, because for concerns of ableism and if people have a bad back or a bad knee, um, we're like, you know, you can totally, you can do two person bow drill. Like one of you can be on one end, the other can be on the other end. You can crank along and it really can help. But in this class, it, it wasn't even necessarily that people were having those specific concerns, but people just wanted to do it together. And when that, when those coals were born and when those Tinder bundles busted into flame, they were collective flames. They weren't like one dude in the wilderness, like drinking his own pee or whatever. <laughs> um, and so there's just been, you know, I think that that's just this open-ended, beautiful new space that we're like exploring with, with the people we work with in our community. Um, and also, you know, when, when we, we did both co-guide um, a queer youth quest for School of Lost Borders, it was actually their first ever queer youth quest. And um, the youth thrived on their solos, like they, they, they kicked butt, but they also, like how excited they were to come back together was, blew our minds. Like it was uh, unparalleled in other groups we've worked with. Um, and when they were out on their solos, they all howled every night, like to each other. Oh. And there was just like, it was so regular, like you could literally predict it, like the setting of the sun, you know, and um, there was just something in it about, about the pack, like, like this wolf pack, you know, and this, um, this sort of collective identity. Cause I think with, with minority and marginalized identities, it's like, we have to come together um, in order to like birth our collective story together. Mm. Um, and I think that's such a, um, valuable part of safe spaces, which I feel like that word has sort of become heavily debated and for some reason become controversial. But I think the, at the core of it, it's about, it kind of goes back to this ancient no notion of sitting in a freaking circle, telling stories and deeply listening. Mm -hmm. And um, so when we're together in those spaces, whether we're scattered across a landscape, but can hear each other from howls or whether we're sitting in a circle afterwards telling the stories of our journeys. Like there's something about doing that with groups like queer folks um, or having like a, you know, a quest for folks of color, um, which I know is something that like Panar's talked about um, initiating in the future. Like there's something about how those are these spaces where there's this magical collective weaving and like a story can be born and it has to be nurtured there because it's like a baby. And then maybe it can be strong enough to be taken out into the world mm -hmm. where there's other people and other things. And But I don't know, there's just something about that all that we're sort of playing with. So I guess I can stop there for now. <laughs> I really appreciate um, the thoughtfulness and, and the care with regard to the idea of the solo um, for queer folk because even in uh, my retreats or my quests, uh, when people are learning how to be in circle with each other, they're always so surprised at how impactful the witnessing and being mirrored, like that th they're just like, whoa, this, I didn't think I was coming for this part. I didn't think I was coming to learn how to be in relationship and like yeah. emotional proximity with other people. I thought I was coming for this other piece. Um, and so for people, groups who are finding this culture very isolating, I think this is a very important question to, to pull up. It's like, oh, well, how appropriate is it to 
to have this other form of isolation imposed like i think maybe we fingered that wound quite thoroughly maybe and like there, there could be some um real uh growth there but you you spoke earlier about um risk and vulnerability and how the world can be very sanitized and and um i mean just in so many examples we can think of of how low risk uh the the western world you know the world we've created is however at the same time in a late stage capitalist collapsing society there's so much more volatility and so there's a different kind of constant low-grade insecurity that's very difficult to put your finger on and that you can't really inoculate for you can't make yourself safe in this kind of world anymore and so i the, I see another paradox there that, uh, yes, you go out into the world and there's some risk, but there's also something so inherently empowering about being able to come right down and into the humus, right? Get humble and feel so mortal, but also feel that you can, that you can be in there, that there's something I, I can also see how that is a little bit of a um, superpower for, for folks who are, looking around at, at you know collapsing um empire and going how how do i do this there's something very um uh i guess the word that's coming it's like it's a remembrance of mm. some inherent belonging in this landscape even as the artifacts crumble yeah and i'm curious um pinar i wanted to ask you about uh queer youth how do you see youth quests for for these queer kids as fitting into their lives like they're going to come in and parachute in and have this great thing but i imagine they're coming from all different places and then how do they carry the quest with them what what are you what are you saying to them about the return it's a really good question i think for um rites of passage um, programs in general that are um, like people fly in or they drive in and they're coming from all over, like how does incorporation look like? And that's like probably the biggest um, conversation happening in like rites of passage uh, communities right now is like how to make, like how to build a support network for incorporation and then another big conversation is around diversity, equity, and inclusion, I would hope at least, but at least that's what I run in. <laughs> um, but yeah, so really great question. Um, I would say that like one of the things that's been really beautiful with seeing the Queer Youth Quest, um, which, which happened last June, yeah, um, and we essentially they ended up staying in contact with each other through um, actually Instagram <laughs> and like, just like following each other. And like, I, you know, recently wrote this essay on um, the gifts of liminality of queer futurism and oh, wrote a lot essay. Thank you very much for that offering. I'll link to it in the show notes. Sorry to interrupt you. No worries. And like in there, I write a ton about how like the queer youth, um, you know, bonded really instantaneously, like so was mentioning and like beautifully. And they've kept in contact with each other in ways that I haven't really seen happen with like, you know, a lot of the adult programs that we've, um, you know, supported and co-guided. Mm -hmm. um, and 
yeah, I, I think, you know, when I sent them, I actually sent them the essay and, all, you know, all the participants of the Queer Youth Quest and they were all like, you know, very touched by it. And then they, you know, were talking to each other about it. So I feel like, you know, a lot of it does have to do with folks who do want to co remain connected. Um, and, you know, because a lot of the people that came, one was from Puerto Rico, which was my sibling, and, um, you know, North Carolina, the Bay Area, Seattle, um, and then two from Denver. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really tough. But in this, you know, as a queer, when I was a queer youth, like I was using the internet, like to find queer community, like really hardcore. And I was in like San Francisco area where I could probably have more in-person community, but I actually did a lot of my community searching online. Um, and um, because of being a gender non-conforming person, I think in particular, and um, yeah, so I feel like that's something that I struggle with a lot. Cause you know, you were just talking about like, um, you know, preparing for, uh, the, the collapse of civilization and like what if like you know there is no you know when there is no internet like how are we gonna continue incorporating these um really vulnerable and beautiful intimate conversations with our souls and um our community and with the more than human world um and that's definitely something that I feel like we are gonna find out together <laughs> you know and one of the reasons why I think queer nature and we like um, really emphasize on more than human relationships is that that for me has been the biggest anchor with like my experiences in the um, like with my solos quote unquote have been like being accountable to the my ecological community members and um, and that for I mean to me that also brings up two of like um, something that you brought up around um, the collapse of you didn't actually I didn't actually say you did. collapse. I said collapse of empire, but yeah, you, empire. I, I really appreciate. I just want to say that you said when there is no internet, because that's that's like a running gag in our house. Is like we'll sure miss this internet when it's gone, and like most people laugh. I'm like, guess what? There's like quote unquote civilized places in the world that are war torn with no internet. So yeah, it's happening, folks. It's not a joke. Anyway, so sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Oh no, it's great. <laughs> But I just wanted to also mention too, something that you're mentioning regarding that um, is that one thing that I feel like is really integral is like with rites of passage and looking at it on a, in a bigger lens of like species, um, like for our human species, but also in particular to like the, to me, at least the way I see it is like the death of settler colonialism um, and like remediating what is so ready to die. <laughs> and um, you know, releasing it and giving it back to the earth and like how, how do we do that as like a collective, you know, I think that queer people in particular have this really, you know, kind of going back to the Kwari Warmi um, story that I was sharing in my lineage is that queerness has this beautiful magic and like, um, gift of in-betweenness. And so there's a part of me and like, that's really inspired by, you know, with the collapse of, um, of civilization, of empire, of settler colonialism, that I really strongly believe, especially after guiding the queer youth quest, that queer youth are one of the core beings who are gonna help lead us in that way. Mm -hmm. um, the stories that we heard on that land, like 
were like heartbreakingly shattering, like soul, like empowering, like I can't even you know put words to. And it was just emergence and action. And that's one of the things that I strongly believe in is that queerness is traditional ecological knowledge. And like, how have we lost that? Um, mm -hmm. And to me, you know, being on the land, especially being on land that's like First Nations territories, um, how queerness can be actually supported and blossomed from those landscapes and from those ecological community members um, is just so, yeah, just so important in the way that we guide rights of passage work. And, um, you know, and all kids, yeah. I just, I want to get a picture because yeah. I'm seeing in my mind my son who's 14. I showed him your website and everything. And he was like, um, thank you, but no, thank you. Like, I think he has this orientation that's like anxiety, like it, you know, it'd be too hard, what, you know. And, and so I, I kind of chalked it up to, well, he's just still a bit young, right? So, but maybe I'm wrong. How old are these kids that were on this? fabulous quest you're referring to so the queer youth quest we had 16 to 21 year old mm -hmm. um so 16 to 21 um but we were also like 20 yeah it was 20 mm -hmm. but like flexible with that um too um but i also want to name too that um we're supporting um the launch of a new program through rites of passage journeys in um, near seattle washington um for the mountain queer or queer mountain quest sorry it's so a queer mountain quest and that's for um 13 to 18 year olds and um that's gonna be in august um and i could find out the dates in particular but so that is also another program that will have you know queer youth and amplifying and so 13 and 18 year olds circling together that just seems like such a vast how is that facilitated so since we haven't guided that one just yet, um, I'm not clear how that's going to look like just yet. But with the Queer Youth Quest, which was 16 to 20, um, you know, there was some concern about that initially. But, you know, when they first met each other and that solidarity that initially happened and occurred within like meeting each other, like I almost like forgot that they had such huge age differences, like mm -hmm. developmentally, that speaking. Um, so, I didn't really feel like that showed up too greatly. Um, yeah, so, and so I feel like what was the core, I mean, I could probably see that with like open, you know, youth fasts, uh, where there isn't that like core thing, bringing them together within, you know, being used, just, you know, in addition to being used. Um, so we didn't see anything necessarily, um, we didn't track anything necessarily that was concerning regarding that. With the uh, Queer Mountain Quest, um, Again, I'm not so clear how that's going to look in terms of like how, you know, the age, how we're, um, how that's going to inform their relationship with one another. All I know is that Rites of Passage Journeys have been, has been doing this for a long time. And so um, I think it'll be held in a good way and they'll be supported. Um, and, you know, again, that shared space of queerness, I think, will really help um, bond them with on the land and We'll make yeah. sure that we put the links to Queer Mountain Quest in the show notes so that people who want to track how that's, you know, progressing over time, because that sounds like a, a really fantastic, um, like just another opportunity. There's so many more opportunities. It makes me so happy. Um, so I want, want to bring this back to your personal experiences because, uh, I know in my solo time, I, I usually have like this whole 
schedule of ceremonies I want to do and different, you know, observances and all of that. And then I usually get derailed by some emergent thing. <laughs> and, and sometimes uh, it's, it's emotion. And um, I've certainly found myself uh, dancing with disquiet. And sometimes if I'm lucky, it can dissolve into something um, more potent, like grief or rage or despair or, you know, and sometimes I'm going out there. I, I am thinking of when I did uh, a, a winter fast solo where I had to snowshoe up and I was specifically grieving uh, mm. a friend who had died. And, mm. but God damn it, if it wasn't so beautiful and her presence just kept making me delight in the landscape. And so I couldn't grieve to save my life because I was so overcome with bliss uh, of just the beauty and even just the grace of being able to survive in the cold and the hailstorms and all this. It was just, so I kind of couldn't really do what I thought I wanted to do. <laughs> I don't know if you've had that experience probably, but I'm curious about um, if you'd be willing to share uh, how, what your relationship is like with grief or rage or both maybe. So um, we could start with you if you feel ready. Yeah. Um, and do you mean like in general or just, or like when on the land or both? Like or both. Yeah. Whatever, whatever your is in your heart. And when you think about grief and rage. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, like I've been really influenced recently by, um, the author Carla McLaren. I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but Pinar introduced me to her and she, um, she wrote this great book called the language of emotion. And, um, she identifies as an empath, um, and she um, is also like a, a survivor of childhood abuse. And um, she's just, her story is very moving um, and just such a story of survivance. And one of the things that came out of that was um, basically her deep trust in sort of the evolutionary and ecological intelligence of all emotions. Like, and she talks a lot about some, something you were talking about earlier um, in our check-in, but just like the the negative valencing of emotions in our culture and how, you know, ang the angers particularly are um, very negatively um, categorized. And one thing that I've really learned from her work and am trying to integrate, although it's, it's a challenge, is um, just the notion of anger as a boundary guardian. And Carla actually talks about anger as like pretty much, like anger is like her quote unquote favorite because because anger is literally like the warrior, like sentry at the, at the gates of your soul, you know, like anger is the boundary guardian and also an expression of self-love. And so the question becomes how to, how to channel um, anger in, in a, in a life-giving way that doesn't hurt others um, and doesn't also, you know, irreparably hurt ourselves either. Um, so that's something that I am sort of living into. Um, and when it comes to um, how that interacts with my relationship to the natural world and to you know rites of passage work or my own experiences out on the land, I mean one thing I that we both love to do, um, Pinar and I together, but also like what I've done on on solos um, individually is when I'm feeling like there's a stuckness or there's like sort of apathy or, or depression, which I often feel like is 
a mask for grief and rage, um, or not not a mask, but sort of like it's more preliminary, like <laughs> obstacle or something. Like I I really um, look to the expressions of boundary setting in the natural world and particularly by the forwards. Um, and one way I do that is through tracking, wildlife tracking and trailing. Um, you know, I love following trails. Like I just remember I was a participant on the School of Lost Borders adult queer quest back in 2015. We both were. And I just remember that when I was feeling a lot of stuck emotional energy that needed and wanted to move and flow, I would just go, um, we, this was out in the San Isabel National Forest, and I would just go find these game trails that would like, um, that would skirt the perimeters of these U.S. Forest Service fences and roads, and um, I would just follow them, and you know, and they would take me places, and I just feel like there's something so, um, it, I, I've been on this quest to like try to have a, a, re- a good relationship with ceremony out on the land that doesn't feel appropriative, and I feel like I always just come back to ancestral earth-based skills. Um, tracking and trailing are just such a universal ancestral skill um, that all of our ancestors did. And, um, and so it feels so, it feels so nourishing to be following trails because there's a flow there. And then there's also a flow with how our emotions want to come out and they want to move and trauma wants to move. And, um, and so it just reminds me of like, of like maze walking and how that's kind of this stylized, like cultural version of what all, all of our, you know, ancestors did in like a very practical way that was probably also really spiritual too, but like, it was also pra- like the, the first spiritualities were inevitably practical as well. Um, and so I do that. And like, I also pay attention to when I do have the great privilege of seeing um, four leggeds and um, winged people out on the land like I just sometimes a lot of their expressions of boundary setting have really stuck with me like the sparring of like of like two elk who are trying to establish a pecking order or one time I slept I put my bed right in the middle of a a coyote's patrol route and he or she came sniffing at my head in the middle of the night and I jolted upright and scared the crap out of this poor animal that I think most people would be terrified to hear that story. And they'd be like, Oh my God, that's so scary. And I'm like, yeah, for them <laughs> out of this poor creature. And I was right in the middle of their, this trail because like this area was so beautiful and it was right by this Creek. And of course I was sleeping right on a game trail. Right. So I feel like that really decenters, and it's not like I always want to decenter my own grief and rage because I think it's really important to also center it, but it's important to have a dance between centering it and also decentering it by looking to um, the more than human world. Mm. Wow, fantastic. It got me excited thinking about um, following trails and tracking. And uh, that's one of my favorite things to do too. And was my favorite when I was a kid. And it's lovely to think of, you know, walking the labyrinth of a maze as a stylized version of that. Thank you for that, that connection. Um, how about you, Pinner? Yeah, um, great question. Hmm. Well, it's so funny hearing you talk. So I, you know, one of the ways that I move grief and rage um, is also through tracking and trailing. But then I also remember too, that some, there's this very, um, like I've had the experience of feeling like my ancestors rage and grief and like having to, Mm. and I continue to, (laughs) but uh, I, 
it's been like such a process of being like, oh, this is my grief in this generation. Okay, these are like these, you know, this is like my matrilineage's grief and this is my like patrilineage and, and you know, doing this like trailing internally of like whose grief is this and like, and honoring all of that and not just being like, oh, it's theirs and, you know, somehow, you know, not processing for them because I have the uh, privilege of being alive right now in this body and like in this, you know, form where I can move their grief to. Um, and so I think that that's really important for me. Um, and one of the ways that that actually shows up with my ancestral grief is um, I tend to be a really quiet person um, and um, like within groups and whatnot. And, um, and so what I tend to do if I feel my ancestral grief and or rage is I'll give voice to it in a very strategic, like in a strategic way <laughs> and like be like, this is what's coming up for me. Um, it's not mine, but it's, it is. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, and just really giving voice to what's happening. And I often feel like their rage can get really amplified in spaces where, um, you know, like indigeneity is erased um, or being a, you know, black and in indigenous person of color. Um, those voices are erased or queer voices are erased, um, the land's voices in particular. Um, so just like becoming like an amplifying body of like sharing it um, feels like that helps move a lot of ancestral um, grief and rage and same with writing um, and also creating like through creating baskets. That's a really big thing that I feel like has moved a lot of grief. I tend to create baskets when I'm in council mm -hmm. and, uh, usually, you know, that's, um, there's, there tends to be like this beautiful process that happens, you know, with people sharing their stories around, you know, just struggle, um, and like putting like making beauty and like imbuing their stories into this basket um feels really integral um whenever i'm in council or um so that's another thing is basketing or just creation um you know like creating like working with leather or buckskin and um and i will also just note too that like one of my um you know, the first buckskin that I made had a lot of scars on, um, on them. Cause it was the back and the, the back of the deer tend to ha like, they go underneath barbed wires. And so they have a bunch of beautiful scars. And so, um, and I also have a lot of scars on my body, uh, from self-inflicted scars when I was a teen. And so also like loving them, um, and lo loving scars and loving, um, loving like the marks of rage and grief is also a way that I move grief and rage um, is um, yeah. Just like honoring survival stories of um, each person, each queer person, each, you know, um, uh, person of color or native people or, you know, people on the res who are really youth on the res who are really struggling to stay alive. Um, just really honoring and loving those stories um, and expanding you know, my grief is, you know, a part of this web of grief. Um, mm. Yeah. So I'll just mm. name that. Mm. Wow. Well, thank you very much for the offerings. This has been, um, it's like we've been trailing and <laughs> following all of these different notions. And now we've come back and I feel like, oh, we've already had the feast. This has been really good food. Mm -hmm. This has been really good food, really good processing. So thank you so much. 
So and Pinar for being on the show. I really appreciate everything you've shared. It's been very rich for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, sometimes I get so excited about an interview that I need to debrief and process. So I'd like to welcome back to the show my spouse, my man, the one holding space for me to hold space, Ruben Anderson, <laughs> my friends. <laughs> welcome back to the show, Ruben. Good morning. How, how was that interview for you? I uh, <laughs> am left without much coherent to say. What? Yeah. You, well, you seem, I mean, looking at you, there's color in your face. There's redness in your eye. Uh -huh. It seems like you're having an emotional response. Well, I'm in uh, an emotionally heightened state, let's say, for the past couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, so I may fall apart extra. Okay, you're gonna be extra. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we may need to pause the recording. Okay. Thank oh. you for for sharing that with us, so we can all just kind of ground and hold space for you, the man who holds space for me. So uh, I witnessed you listening to the interview, mm -hmm. and I could tell something was going on. Mm -hmm. And do you want to just share what it was like when I said, "So, what do you think so far?" What did you say? I, I don't remember what I said. What did I say? <laughs> you said, I feel like a white man who gardens mm. with a tractor, mm. which you don't. But which I, I don't. I, I, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by that? Well, um, we've spoken in the past about uh, kind of my grief over coming to understand there are other ways of feeling the world. And so we've spoken about it here on the West Coast where we live. The First Nations uh, are in relationship with magical creatures like raven and wolf, uh, bear, orca, like almost all the creatures, it seems, mm -hmm. have magical capacities. And so there was a time when I realized that that meant for someone living in the West Coast forest, they would have experienced the presence of a magical creature like perhaps dozens of times a day. Mm -hmm. And I felt in my bones that I would never know that. And uh, so James, uh, who wrote The Once and Future World, spoke of how the Finns believe Bear is a relative. And I, I can hear the words and understand what the sentence means. But I'm left wondering what that, how you live that. Like, do you wrap a present at Christmas time? Do you set a place at the table? Like, what does it mean? to have bear in your family. Mm -hmm. uh, or our friend Juliana, who is in relationship with cats mm -hmm. in a way much more <laughs> mm -hmm. than we are with our cat. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, so and Pinar pointed to, um, they, well, there were just so many things that just kind of blew my mind. Uh, so they used the phrase transpersonal longing and uh, spoke of identifying with landscapes. Um, and then also uh, spoke of, um, I think maybe it was Pinar that said this about, uh, I, I didn't have the advantage of seeing the video. <laughs> I just right, heard the so audio. hearing the difference in their voices <laughs> yeah. is a little yeah, tricky I, at times. I, I yeah. couldn't always keep track of who was speaking. <laughs> right. um, 
uh, one of them spoke of being neurodivergent. So yeah, that was Pinar. Pinar. So having uh, relationships with the more than human, the world. more than human world, mm-hmm. and conversations with the more than human world being judged as a, a sign of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so when, when I think about, so there's just it's this is all just kind of a this is like you know it all just kind of blows my mind because I I have these like little tastes where I can I can I can hear the words and understand what they mean, but I I can't. You know, I don't know what it lands like in my body. I have a, I have a much better feeling with the landscapes of the Okanagan than I do with the coast, mm-hmm. where know? you grew up. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I find the coast to be oppressive and too right. green. <laughs> That's right. It's too wet, and the trees are too big yeah, and I, too close together. I do like the rain. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's so interesting though because um, I hear you saying you can't, you know, you can't know what it feels like in your body to have that. But I think there's something commensurate happening in your ancestral grief. It's kind of reminding me of what So was talking about when they were saying at the end about, um, uh, you know, having grief. Oh, no, it was Pinar who was saying at the end, like, when they have ancestral grief, and it, it's it's theirs, but it's not. It's sort of in the lineage, the mm-hmm. loss, the displacement, the bereavement, the oppression, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Uh, but it is theirs because they're... They, I think they said they have the privilege of being in this body at this time mm-hmm. that is expressing this grief. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the way that they honor that is to give voice to it. So I, when I see you crying, when I hear your voice trembling, when I, you know, see the kind of collapsing in of your shoulders and your arms and in your belly, I always see that as... Um, speaking to the love, speaking to, that there must have been, the relationship would be commensurate in the sense of connection, which of course is so difficult to obtain in the world that we have. So I I find a little bit of, um, I don't know, like optimism in that, because I think if you can access the grief of it, that's a pretty good indication that you're going to be able to access the connection of it. But I think we live in an urban environment. We have to do pretty immersive experiences in nature, you know, leading quests and stuff like that in order for us to really get that um, attunement. And then even then, we're kind of holding space for the human world as people are out doing their own transpersonal longing work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But someday, my love, someday, my (laughs) love... Yeah, there's there's just the challenge of never actually like you can't prove a negative, right? Like I, mm. like we will never know yeah. what it's like mm-hmm. to be born into a culture that has these culture mm. ways, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I can I, I have increasing connection all the time mm-hmm. to the more than human world, um, but I will never know what my ancestors would have actually felt mm-hmm. yeah and you know maybe they were just like wow steel plow this thing's the best thing ever mm-hmm. you know maybe they maybe it, it was the water in which they swimmed and they thought nothing mm-hmm. of it but some of them for sure yeah i feel though like uh you and i are people who are uh always living in the long-term knock-on effects of things <laughs> like we're very <laughs> systemic and i feel yeah. like that couldn't have just come from our environments because of course we were brought up in um yeah we were not brought up 
with a lot of spiritual tutelage and a lot of, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, intergenerational intactness. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's kind of a, it's in our DNA. Mm. So I bet in our past, we've <laughs> always had these people that are kind of, um, uh, in your case, you know, intuiting logic. In my case, you know, we know in my lineage of all the uh, augury, as they said in the Scottish Highlands of the divination and the mm-hmm. um, presentience. So I kind of feel like we've always, I bet we've always felt a little bit misfit. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were other great things. So there was one big idea that I want to talk about, or one big thing I noticed that I kind of want to wrestle with a bit, but there was other couple, a couple of other great sentences that I wrote down. One was cultural in-betweenness. Mm-hmm. Um, and another was how to be accountable as a human animal, mm, um, mm-hmm. which I really liked. Yeah, they, each of them, uh, in their own way, are so lyrical, mm-hmm. and I, yeah. I could, I could listen to them for a long time. Imagine uh, yeah. being by the fire. Uh, Let's gather at the hearth fire with them. Yes, I would like to spend several days with beer. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. With some pinar and so and lots of beer. Yeah, yeah same here. Yeah. Um, they made the distinction, uh, they, they chose the terminology of ancestral skills, mm-hmm. uh, which I really liked. And we're talking about the, the kind of the assumptions that come with words like survival skills. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the thing that uh, I felt as they were describing this was that um, was the quality of elegance. Um, and there's a lot of elegance in so-called survival skills, in ancestral skills. There's mm-hmm. a lot of elegance in being able to uh, be a part of the place that you were in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I comment a lot about. So my background is in product design or a background is in product design. One of design. your backgrounds, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I comment a lot on how design, modern design, modern technology often is extremely inelegant. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about the old film cameras, it was used as a, a sexy thing in movies. Like photographers were sexy. They would hold the camera up to their eyes and they'd be focusing and their bodies would be like mm-hmm. twisting to get the they right shot. down and yeah. Yeah, whereas now people like hold the camera about 18 inches in front of their face and wander around like zombies. Like mm-hmm. they look... Literally with your arms out like yeah, zombies. Like zombies, yeah. yeah. They, they look so... And slack-jawed, like there's mm-hmm. nothing sexy about it. And then similarly with um, with uh, smartphones, you know, you, you just turn into this hunched little lima bean of, <laughs> you know, staring into the screen. Like mm-hmm. the, the design deeply uglifies the human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it really, so much of what um, uh, So and Pinar were saying appealed in a very mm. uh, physical, visceral, and like delightful way. I was mm-hmm. lighting up because it really appealed to my, you know, this is partly a Celtic thing, the idea of the fitness of things. Mm-hmm. There is a way, there is an elegance, there is a, mm-hmm. you know, there is a little flourish that then in it engenders a kind of pride and delight mm-hmm. and pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so, so much of the way they were talking about their approach mm-hmm. to um, uh, 
ancestral skills, uh, the role of the critical role of queerness mm -hmm. in the times that we're in. It was just it really appealed to the fitness of things mm -hmm. for me. And mm -hmm. I wanted to just before I forget that there was um, when Pinar was talking about in her, uh, their indigenous um, origin stories mm -hmm. in uh, South America of how the first beings, humans, were not male and female mm -hmm. prior to that mm -hmm. was the androgynous, mm -hmm. you know, the wholeness. Mm -hmm. And it just feels so intuitively right. If, mm -hmm. if we know, you know, evolutionarily, everything starts at kind of an amoebic form, not mm -hmm. to equate um, queerness with simplicity or androgyny mm -hmm. with less than, but mm -hmm. or original mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say. It's yeah. like, oh, gosh, it just, it really landed mm -hmm. in this very truthful place for me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Um, just going back to the earlier part of that, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, talking, you you talked about the fitness of things, uh, and I'd written down, uh, appropriate technology. Like there's mm. a, which I think is very much, it's, it's, it's a sufficiency. There's a fitness or a sufficiency to it. It's like, we will use enough to get the job done, uh, but we won't use more than the job needs. Mm -hmm. So, which again, is sort of an elegance. You take away everything that you don't need. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I quite enjoyed that. Um, okay. So yeah, so I have a big topic. Is there anything else you want to say before I jump into this? No, I, I okay. let's, let's keep going. Cause I just want to keep, again, this isn't about, uh, coming to us. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're not trying to take away from Pinar. And so we want to mm -hmm. slow down <laughs> and <clears throat> highlight. We mm -hmm. want to already do a review and a retrospective and highlight yeah. because, uh, this is totally our jam. Uh, yeah. So, and I, I think this is, uh, what I have here is, um, some things I noticed that leave me with questions. Oh, okay. So that's, that's what I'm, mm -hmm. that's what I'm bringing. Let's, all <laughs> be, let's ponder together. Yeah. Okay. So, um, they told the very beautiful story of the queer youth out on quest, <gasps> howling to each other. Oh, night. I cried. <laughs> right? I yeah. cried when I yeah. listened to it even. Oh, um, it's so good. And, and they, they spoke of the power in the pack, uh, which I found so interesting. And I, um, I thought it was interesting because they had previously said it, and you say often that quest requires a separation. There's a part where you, you break, mm -hmm. you sever, <laughs> you sever and you go. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a very different thing from being in a pack. From requiring a pack. Yeah. From requiring a pack. Whereas, so the way that I describe that with questers is we require witness. Otherwise, if we cross a threshold without witness, then guess mm -hmm. what happens is you're like muddling through later on. You're like, have I made it? Am mm -hmm. I initiated? Did I arrive? Did I achieve? Mm -hmm. Am I an adult now? If you don't have somebody at the threshold witnessing somebody meeting you at the end, if you don't have witness, then guess what you are? You're mm -hmm. an uninitiated adult. Anyway, sorry. That's Yeah. So but there's, there's a difference there between the whole process, say of a 12 day, uh -huh. uh, and with the four days solo in the middle. Mm -hmm. So in this case, the four days are not quite solo. Right. Because you're with the... Because you're with a pack. You're with a pack yeah. in the more than human world. And I, so there's a couple things that sort of unpacked for me. And one, I think, is that it points to how queer people are, you know, I, I, I said not served by society. Like queer people are not incorporated into society mm -hmm. such that <laughs> they find more presence 
almost alone in the wilderness mm. than they might just walking down the streets of our city. I don't, I don't see what you mean. Um, I mean that it sounds like this was a powerful community experience for them. Mm-hmm. A, a, they had a powerful community experience virtually alone in the wilderness. Right. And that speaks uh, to me, I think, of the impoverished way they're incorporated into our society. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. For sure. so there's that aspect. Um, but then that also highlights, I think, how Quest is used today, which is... Uh, a lot of people seem to use it for sort of a personal development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I I don't quite know how to articulate this, but I have all these like scribbles about the process of return. Mm-hmm. Um, the three of you spoke about the process of return and you've worked very carefully in your quest to create a strong return for people mm-hmm. into that their... carries on for the year after and yeah. hopefully carries on beyond that. Yeah. And so again, I was, I was wondering if this points to just, you know, <laughs> golly, I wonder if our society is impoverished. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it made me think that maybe this is all deeply strange because we still think of quests as going out to kind of grow yourself. Um, and it seemed to me that there's this part where you're you're not being sent out to better yourself. You're being sent out to better the community. It's like you yes. have to go grow up because mm-hmm. we need you. That's that's totally into as a as a guide, mm-hmm. and I I can't speak for Pinar and so, mm-hmm. but knowing their training ish mm-hmm. as well, that that is precisely why you go on quest. Even though most people signing up with us mm-hmm. wouldn't think that. But in the um, preparation Mm -hmm. to go on your quest, that's what we're doing for the first four days is saying, just so you know, (laughs) this isn't for you. It's for you to go and uh, have the confrontation with the self to sever from the world so you can figure out who you really are or what your gifts really are or, Mm -hmm. you know, reclaim that connection. Not for yourself, Mm -hmm. but for your people. Mm-hmm. The impact isn't it, it, the primary impact is not for your own benefit or edification. It's for your community. And people go, uh-huh, uh-huh, <laughs> and then they, they go out and worry yeah. about whatever making fire. It isn't until the return mm-hmm. that that really starts to sink in. Mm-hmm. Because guess what? Most people come back from quests that there isn't a, a really good solid. I, I mean, I don't know who's doing a really good solid support mm-hmm. for the year long incorporation afterwards. I, it sounds like Pinar and So, like myself, are really, really like digging into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but guess what? You come back and the feeling of bereftness mm-hmm. is so acute. Mm-hmm. You know, we, as you know, I have people, um, I write letters to people's witnesses back home Mm -hmm. they're quote-unquote people Mm -hmm. right who are going to witness them their own loved ones and friends Mm -hmm. i write a letter to those people and say just so you know this is fucking serious like (laughs) this person is doing a big thing and it's for your benefit so Mm -hmm. you need to cook them a meal you need to listen to them you need to Mm -hmm. you know welcome them back guess how many people do that Mm -hmm. i mean people witnesses our culture doesn't know how to be a witness even when you write them a fucking Mm -hmm. like dictate (laughs) here's how you do it most people's friends and loved ones don't really get it they try to do it over coffee they Mm -hmm. you know like they they ask dumb questions (laughs) they don't let people finish right Mm -hmm. um so that's when they realize 
oh, I don't have people to come back to. Mm -hmm. And so I've done all this work. Mm -hmm. And now I feel the impoverishment even more acutely, mm -hmm. which is why being able to support people, reconnecting them with their pack. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I love what they said about how these kids connected through Instagram. I was like, you're so great. <laughs> I love millennials. Yeah. I love iGen. I love, mm. I love the young people. Um, but Indeed. anyway, so, uh, yeah, so, so I think you're exactly right. And we spend a lot of time being very explicit about that. Um, you don't actually sit in on my circle time. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a piece you, you just missed. That's when I'm washing dishes, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. That's when, and preparing cocktails and all that stuff. <laughs> um, I, I guess the part that, uh, I heard that I never heard before, cause I, I understood that, um, that the people who go out and fast don't have a culture to come back to. What I hadn't grasped is that they don't have a culture to send them out there in the first place. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're being driven out by themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to a certain extent, probably by being a misfit in this culture. So in that way, their culture sends them out <laughs> through, <laughs> through neglect, right? right. <laughs> you know, um, but that is not how this should happen. Right. You know, you should be sent out as a, a needed piece mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of a culture. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is where trying to create a quest that is adapted for these times, but mm -hmm. maintains um, a strong lineage in the ancestral skill work is mm -hmm. um, really difficult, you know, and it isn't a go stop right wrong thing. Mm -hmm. It's more like the clutch break gas. Mm -hmm. We're trying to find the sweet spot of it. Mm -hmm. But um, my teacher, Sparrow Hart, would say, well, you know, uh, we could have a whole bunch of elders here, you know, from different indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. um, but guess what? The, the time when this particular ritual of severance and, mm -hmm. you know, and then return was occurring didn't have opioid academic, uh, epidemics. It didn't mm -hmm. have intergenerational abuse and trauma. It didn't have widespread addiction, you know. Mm -hmm. And so we're just going to have to do the best we can. Mm -hmm. And um, so we are figuring it all out together, which I think is a very sort of... Um, these are situ it's situational awareness skills for collapsing times, you mm -hmm. know, because we there's no right way to do it. And we're just always going to have to keep, you know, <laughs> awareness of mm -hmm. that clutch break gas. Like, how are we doing? And just kind of keep tweaking and modifying and adapting. Mm -hmm. I think that's the best we can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just want to also say, as soon as Pinar started talking about... Um, queerness and creaks mm -hmm. and fluidity mm -hmm. i was like in, enamored <laughs> i was like okay fantastic mm -hmm. and then when so was talking about trailing mm -hmm. i was like oh my god that is what i've been doing since i was a kid you know some people don't have this but some people do so i'm speaking to the people who do who can just kind of look at a landscape in like a wide angle kind of way and mm -hmm. see all the trails mm -hmm. just like Instantly, you can mm -hmm. just see all the game trails without it being snowy, without mm -hmm. there actually being much there. You can just kind of see where it is. Mm -hmm. And it's an intuitive sensing. Uh, and I used to just follow them like all the time mm -hmm. in this kind of West Coast dense brush salal <laughs> forests, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's easier, I think, in some places like, you know, Colorado plateaus, you know, 
pretty um it's alpine mm -hmm. it you know and or death valley right mm -hmm. it's like you can see them you know long way away mm -hmm. um crisscrossing the landscape but it's a really beautiful experience to suddenly just there they all are mm -hmm. and um some people get that when when it snows mm -hmm. right suddenly you see all the cats going like where the cats go through urban yards or the mm -hmm. squirrels or the raccoons or whatever mm -hmm. um but uh that felt like a beautiful way to reconnect with the idea of walking the labyrinth, like that this is some, mm -hmm. this is another form of ancestral skill. Mm -hmm. Just kind of following. And it's like, instead of noodling in your mind, you can just kind of noodle along mm -hmm. um, these well-worn paths, just like all these neural pathways, right? It's very cool. Well, and maybe on that, uh, on that, I might push back on the use of the word ancestral skill. Um, because so I, I have a friend on Facebook well and I, I have a I have a friend in real life <laughs> uh, who is a hunter he's a very uh, frequent hunter and he pushes back he's a very progressive uh, person but he pushes back against sort of the progressive line on guns and eating meat and hunting a lot um, because he sees the relationship that hunters have with the wilderness some hunters, I'm going to say some, that. Okay, I yeah, when yeah, I was in yeah. guide school, it's an outfitting. Mm -hmm. it, some, for sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. were very uh, intimately and grieved yeah. at taking a life, even yeah. if they were eating it. Some are not so much that yeah, way. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, he, but he would point to the some hunters, I think, right. as being people that are deeply in love mm -hmm. uh, with, with natural landscapes mm -hmm. and with the animals that exist in them and being in relationship with them, which includes... Uh, consuming them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think, you know, going back to what I started saying about this conversation with Soam Pinar is that um, I, I, my mind was just blown by kind of the, the new ways and new levels they were taking relationship with the natural world. New uh, old ways. Uh, well, new to me ways, yes. I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's like I can, I hear that echo you know, in, in what Sasha says about hunters. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like this, there, yeah, it's just, there's this sort of, you know, we use words like, yes, I like being outdoors. I, I, <laughs> I enjoy walking through the woods, you know? So we use these descriptors of things without saying like, I am in relationship. I am in love with, I am talking to. Mm -hmm this forest or something and so they they just really articulate that it's like no i i don't just like creeks <laughs> right. like i'm in relationship mm -hmm. with creeks mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. i don't just prefer the okanagan landscape i have a relationship with it mm -hmm. i think in terms of uh the trailing that so was talking about mm -hmm. what made that so beautiful to me uh, is that you know they also talked about the human animal and mm -hmm. so when I see myself trailing, I'm like, oh, because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I'm an animal yeah. and I can intuitively sense, you know, this is what I might do. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but because I forgot that, the reclamation of that mm -hmm. is an ancestral skill because mm -hmm. now I have to learn it. Mm -hmm. It's not something that came natural to me. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I hear you pushing back, but um, I'm going to hold the line on that one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. All in all, uh, this was one of my favorite mm -hmm. podcasts like of all time. Mm -hmm. It's number 93. <laughs> yeah, it just, yeah. It, it totally was so delightful mm -hmm. for me. Sometimes, yeah, it, when somebody else 
speaks my mind mm -hmm. so clearly. Mm -hmm. It's just, it feels like relief and pleasure. Mm -hmm. It's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And so then I was feeling kind of in love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I think they spoke more where I wished my mind was. Mm. Mm -hmm. Kind of in the middle. Yeah, okay, so leading. let's actually talk about um, our quest. Okay. Okay, so I think we need to encourage people <laughs> <laughs> to not be those people who come in in the, in the last week before quest. Mm -hmm. It happens on every retreat, mm -hmm. every, you know, it happened in the last quest too, mm -hmm. where literally somebody was like, okay, I'm coming five days before. Mm -hmm. It's not impossible, mm -hmm. but it does require uh, planning and rejigging because of course we're bringing up all the food, mm -hmm. I'm cooking all the food, we're packing all the food. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's measured mm -hmm. to the portion yeah. and it would be great if we knew this well in advance. So uh, we've set April 1st as the deadline for deposits, okay. but we're actually going, uh, your last night on your um, solo time is under the full moon in June. It's just spectacular. Mm -hmm. It's spectacular. So uh, if you'd like to come on Quest with us, you need to reach out sooner than later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can get all the details uh, on my website. You can place your deposit online under the retreats tab. Uh, thanks so much for rubinating today, my love. Always a pleasure. Okay. Uh, get all the details to come on quest with us at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N. Oh, stop. Wait a second. Hold the phone. I haven't thanked listeners. Oh. And, uh, I think actually I do have listeners in Colorado now because oh. I've done quite a bit of training in the somatic attachment and mm -hmm. trauma resolution stuff there. Mm -hmm. uh, and so shout out to Colorado. Shout out to Colorado and the, uh, Colorado plateau. And also I had a wonderful hike, uh, through the Rockies there. Mm -hmm. So, um, now I will forever associate Colorado with, uh, So and Pinar and mm -hmm. their trailing and everything. Mm -hmm. Thank you everyone who's spending time with us there. So yes, get all the web, uh, all the information on my site, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. And until next time, take care.